Well, I, this morning I'd like to start by asking you a question. Uh, and this question that I'm about to ask, I've been thinking through as I've been preparing for uh, preaching 38 chapters this morning, um, but also uh, in getting ready to preach through the book of Exodus. And so here's the question. What's God doing? What is he up to? And now I don't mean this question to be skeptical at all. If, if any of you know me, I'm not a very skeptical person. So when I look at this narrative that we're about to jump into this morning, I just keep saying, God, what are you doing? What are you going to do amongst these people? Now, some of us in this room right now may be actually asking those same exact questions, but not when we come to the text, but when you contemplate your reality right now. What's God doing in my life? Maybe you're having a hard time making sense of why God has allowed a disease to plague our world for the last year and a half. Maybe you have been laid off from your job. Maybe you're failing a class. Maybe there's a difficult task at home called managing a toddler. Maybe you're actually being held captive by anxiety or fear, doubt, worry. And so the question you're asking is, what's God doing right now? What's God doing? It's so easy to doubt. But I think this morning, as we're looking at 38 chapters in Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50, it's going to help us bolster our confidence in the sovereign hand of our good God. And it's going to help us fix our eyes even more attentively on the sweet providence of the Lord Jesus. But why do I say that? Well, because we not only see the need of redemption in Genesis, as we saw in chapters 1 through 11, but this week we see the promise of redemption. We see that the Lord will protect the seed of the woman and truly save his people. So God's working all things in Genesis, from murder, floods, abuse, abandonment, lost land, all of it, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And so if God has been working faithfully for the good of his people thousands of years way back when, then surely, surely God will be faithful to all that he has promised right now, right now. And why? Because all his promises find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, the provider of a greater land, the provider of a greater nation, and most certainly a greater blessing. So with that said, let's turn to Genesis chapter 12. So if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, you can find our passage on page 8. That's kind of nice. And while you're turning there this morning, you're going to notice in the, in the outline that we have three main points that we're going to be looking at. So one, the promise established. Two, the promise extended. And three, the promise realized. And as you're turning there, now before uh, we even just jump right in, it's crucial that we just quickly review what we've already seen, right? So Genesis 1 and 2, God creates all things, including man created in the image of God, right? Adam and, Lee and Eve live in perfect communion with a holy God, but through the deceitfulness of the serpent, that's Satan, Adam sins, 
right? We saw that in Genesis 3, we have the fall. And so Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. So from that point on, we're introduced to the terrible nature of sin, right? You have death upon death upon death. We see enmity already existing between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? We actually see that one chapter removed from Genesis 3, Cain and Abel. Cain, not that great of a guy, seed of the serpent. Abel, seed of the woman. So Cain kills his brother and is cast out from the presence of God, catching a pattern, right? And then the floodgates of death continue all the way to Lamech in chapter 5 of the book of Genesis. But in Genesis 6 through 9, we have a glimmer of light, don't we? Right? Noah, he's the chosen one. He's commanded to build an ark and he obeys God. So the rains came down. And the floods came up, and we saw that Noah is saved from judgment. Salvation in the midst of judgment. But there's one problem, isn't there? Sin's still in the ark. And so unfortunately, we're still awaiting the promised seed because it isn't founded in Noah. So the narrative cries out for redemption. It's screaming out all the way to chapter 11. We need rescue, which is where we find the promise of redemption in Genesis chapter 12. So let's start in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to read the first four verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So verse 1, right? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. So we have a clear start transition in the narrative from Genesis chapters 1 through 11, right now into Genesis 12. Now the Lord has set his eyes on a new man, right? Abram. This guy is going to bring salvation to the world. A man from the lineage of Shem, right? One of the descendants, one of the kids from Noah's line. And what's the Lord calling this man to do? Well, he's calling him to leave his entire livelihood, right? So just thinking in this line of, of fire here, in essence, he's saying, drop your fishing net and follow me, right? That's the type of language. But God initiates the call to this man, this pagan, and God grants a promise to Abram. He chooses Abram by grace and declares a threefold promise. This is key to the rest of the book. He provides a great, he promises a great land, a great nation, and a great blessing, right? Great land, verses one and seven. A great nation, verse two. Great blessing, verse three. So now it's critical to notice that this threefold promise actually provides the promise of redemption. This is God's plan for reversing the curse from Genesis 3. In fact, the promise actually is contrasted with a list of those curses from Genesis 3. Now let's just think about that promise. Let's think of the land. The Lord begins by calling Abraham out of Ur into a land provided by God himself, right? Just look at verse two. To the land that I, that's God, will show you. And if that isn't clear enough, look at verse seven. 
to your offspring, I will give this land. So God clearly promises a great land, but this is more than a kind gesture to a wandering guy in the wilderness. This is a promise of blessing rather than a curse that's deserved upon this pagan. So just think back to Genesis chapter 3, 17b through 18, right? It says, and to Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. That's land. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. It's corrupted land, toilsome land. But here. Abram's perspective on the matter. Just think back over into Genesis 12. Right, he hears this curse, but then in light of the promise, what's Abram's perspective? Hebrews is really helpful. Abram looked forward to a greater land. In fact, a greater city, whose designer and builder is not man. No, the builder is God. So the promise looks forward to a greater Eden when God and man are reconciled once again harmoniously without the toilsome ground that is promised on the curse of the land in Genesis 3. So according to this promise, the land's going to be redeemed. But not only was God making a promise about land, right? But it's one of great, a great nation leading to great blessing, which actually kicks at the heels of the curse in, 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 the, in the garden, right? Enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So there's turmoil, not only with the land, but also between the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. But here's the promise. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Look what it declares. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So in the blessing of a great nation, through Abram, comes the promised victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. So we have the serpent crusher, the seed of the woman, who will do away with the seed of the serpent. And who is the serpent crusher? It's not Abram. No, it's a future descendant. The serpent crushers the Lord Jesus himself, the true and final offspring of Abraham. You know, I think that we live in a day, and especially in day and age, where we're prone to lose sight of how great our God is. And are you kidding me? Genesis 12, and we're promised a great offspring who's going to bring victory for the people of God? I mean, think of what we worry about in this day and age. We've got COVID, we've got Afghanistan, we've got the stock market, we've got job security, we have the health and safety of our family members, social issues, and the common cold. And so here's our moment to just set it aside this morning and call to mind the majestic wisdom of God. He's a God of purpose who has seen fit to bring about blessing in the midst of a curse curse in Genesis 12 where a sinful pagan named Abram who deserves judgment receives mercy. Where the curse should have engulfed humanity to the point of death, we see the foretaste of the reversal of the curse in the serpent crusher, the Lord Jesus. 
And this all-powerful, all-wise, incomprehensible, infinite Father bids us to look at the word of God this morning and to see just how wondrous he is. So put everything aside this morning. I'm praying that I would and that we'd behold our God in his matchless wisdom. So let me ask us, how have we been doing with that orientation? How are we doing with having a right orientation to the word of God that we would behold the wondrous glory of our God? Are you captured by his wisdom? Are you captured by your circumstance? He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of all our worship. And we're going to see that in abundance this morning. We're only getting started. So in chapter 12, we see the call and the promise given. Right? But in chapter 13, Abram, the seed of the woman, and his brother Lot, the miscalculated brother, go their separate ways. Right? So Abram follows the Lord, and he pursues the land that was promised to him. And Lot decides, well, not to do that. Right? So as they settle in different places, Abram ends up having to send all these guys to Lot's help and safety, right? because he's been held captive by a bunch of kings within that land. So that's Genesis 13, 14. But then we jump back to Genesis 15. So notice what happens in Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And so in this vision, God reiterates the promise made back in chapter 12, right? There's a threefold promise of great land, great offspring, great nation, and a great blessing. So in response, verse 6 tells us, Abram, in light of the promise, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So just pick up on the language here. This is justification by faith alone. This is actually one of the major tenets of our faith here. He's justified by faith. But the chapter isn't over, is it? No, in light of what Abram has just heard, he then asked the Lord a question. Look at verse eight. He says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right? He's saying here, how do I know that you're actually going to give me the promised land that you told me about? And God actually responds. How does he respond? It's through a covenant ceremony. Now, typically, a ceremony like this would have included both parties agreeing to the terms and then walking between the cut animals right, and swearing an oath to one another. So in passing through these animals that have been sacrificed, split in half, then there's a covenant relationship that would be entered between both parties. But if you read your Bible, that's not what happens in Genesis 15, is it? No, just look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So God begins to recall once again the promise from chapter 12 and back in early parts of chapter 15. So just hear the language once again. Offspring, so a nation, great possession of a land, a great land, great blessing. So once again, 
Salvation through judgment, which provides the promised seed and the promised reward. You have a great land, a great nation, and a great blessing. I'm going to repeat that a lot because it's really, really important. So just picture this this morning. Just see the narrative. The Lord begins to reiterate these promises. One after one, threefold promise. Land, offspring, blessing. And verse 17 tells us that a smoking fire pot, so literally like a mini uh, smoking furnace, passes between the split bloody animals which Abram brought before the Lord. And it's split in half. There's blood everywhere. And there's this smoking pot here. Now, anytime we see fire and smoke in the Old Testament, it's imagery that declares this is God. I mean, just think back to the book of Exodus, right? Where does God make himself known to Moses? In a burning bush. How does God lead his people through the the land of Egypt and out of the land of Egypt? Smoke by day, fire by night. So God alone, God alone walks between the split animals here. The smoke and fire, that's the presence of the Lord. So the Lord himself will most definitely keep his promises by his own divine commitment to do so. So God alone holds himself accountable for this very covenant. And so God's promise of redemption, this threefold promise of land, nation, blessing, It rests solely, not on Abraham. We got to see that. It rests on God's faithfulness to keep that covenant. Now here's the thing. At any point, if Abraham or God breaks that covenant, who receives that judgment? God does. God takes on the judgment. God himself will incur that very judgment that's deserved if that covenant is broken. Now don't miss this. Right? This covenant is clear here. That Abraham must obey perfectly. But if Abram isn't faithful, God will be faithful. But we already know that Abram fails. He's a sinner through and through. He can't keep the law fully. And this covenant calls for perfect obedience to God. But listen to this. and This is why we love Genesis, everybody. God puts himself forward as the substitute. God puts him forth to cover a multitude of Abram's sins. So this one section in Genesis 15 actually foreshadows the realities of the gospel. So God's people have continuously sinned egregiously against him. And what happened? At the right time, the Son of God was sent from heaven above, lived a sinless life, a perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous life, and he was slaughtered, absorbing the penalty of sin so that his offspring, the descendants of Abraham, never ever taste death again. Just listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming what? A curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is what Christ accomplished on the cross. He took the curse upon himself for his people. But I must be clear this morning. We certainly can't miss this. If you have not yet put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that curse that's spoken of in Galatians 3 still weighs on you like a millstone around the neck of one who's overlooking a vast ocean. That curse is still upon you. And that curse brings forth death. I mean, we saw in Genesis 1 through 11, there's only one who's able to save you from impending judgment. There's only one who's mighty enough to be the lamb to appease the wrath of God. So I appeal to you, do not harden your heart to the glory of the gospel. You must look upon the Lord Jesus. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. You must rest in the one who's only able to give you rest. You must rest in the curse reverser. You must rest in the serpent crusher. You must rest in the one who's able to satisfy your soul for all your days. That's a God to be worshipped, is it not? So what's God doing? We just saw the call was initiated in Genesis 12. Right? The, the covenant was instituted in chapter 15. But in chapter 17, God's covenant with Abraham is sealed. Now keep in mind that between chapters 15 and 17, there's a 10-year window here. And God's promise to Abram has not yet been fulfilled. In fact, in chapters 16 through 22, there's a display of this foolish patriarch. And so you may remember that in chapter 16, Sarah... She convinces Abram to actually lay with the young servant girl, Hagar. And Abram has his firstborn son. But this isn't the promised child, right? No, this is not the one that the Lord promised. Man takes matters into his own hands. Ishmael is born, but he's not the seed of the woman. He's not the promised one. So when we come on the scene in Genesis 17, Abram is 99 years old. That's kind of old. <laughs> Sarai, she's 89 years old. And it's been roughly 25 years since the promise was originally made to Abram. But God doesn't forget his promises, does he? No, just look at chapter 17. There's going to be land, there's going to be a nation, there's going to be blessing at hand. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Let's read those. It says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Just hear it. Right? There's a reiteration of the garden command from back in Genesis 1. Just like Adam and Eve, you will multiply greatly. So the blessing of a, na of a nation, which is then repeated in verse 5, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So blessing as the father of the nations and a great nation. It's a multitude of nations. But notice, it's a great nation with a great land. Verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. For what? For an everlasting possession 
and I will be their God. Right, so 24 years later, God's doubling down on the promise. And at the end of verse five, he gives Abram a new name, Abraham. And how does the Lord seal his covenant with Abraham? It's through circumcision. Look at verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So that's the sign of the covenant. An outward marking for all of Abraham's children, all the offspring, to be set apart from the rest of the nations. It's a sign of devotion to God. So circumcision, right, the sign of the knife in the flesh is to remind the Lord of his promise of offspring in the face of the curse of death, right? Once again, reversing the curse. So the knife that threatens the curse is actually, in fact, the promise of life for his people. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Yeah, that's good news. But it's not finished. Right? Do you see the promise of redemption coming up to the water level here? We saw the need in Genesis 11, 1 through 11. And now God called Abraham to be in covenant with him in Genesis 12. He instituted that covenant in chapter 15. He sealed the covenant in Genesis 17. But God isn't done. We're going to see in 2 the promise extended that he's going to continue. He's going to extend this threefold promise through the life of Abram, Abraham's offspring, through Isaac, through Jacob, and through Joseph. So let's start with A, Isaac, the promised son, in chapter 21. Right, the Lord called to Abraham and said, hey, your wife, just so you know, she's barren. But that lady is actually going to have a baby. And Genesis 18 shows their response, right? And probably we would have similar responses. They're laughing continuously for chapter upon chapter. There's just tons of laughter going on, right? But just look at Isaac's birth in Genesis 21, 6 and 7, right? Isaac is born, and what do they do? They laugh. <laughs> they're laughing again, but this time it's because they're overwhelmed by God's goodness. It's a good gift. So they're Probably sinful laughter is transformed into a good laughter. I mean, just think of how sweet this picture is. Can you imagine this? For decades, you've desired a child, right? 20 plus years and God's promise, I'm gonna give you a miraculous son. He's coming, he's coming. And you're waiting. I mean, the crying, the heartbreak of when is God gonna do this? What's God doing And then he, then he makes good on his promise. What a wonderful, good gift giver the Lord is. But what makes this scene so crucial is that the birth of this son proves that what God has promised, he will indeed bring it to pass. This God is faithful. He is so faithful. But notice that that seemingly looks to come to an end pretty quickly in our narrative here, doesn't it? Yeah, Genesis 22 is quite interesting. The, the Lord tests Abraham. And in chapter 22, verse 2, he says this. Take your son. Right? 
That's the promised son who was just given to them in chapter 21. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And what does Abraham do? By faith, he goes with Isaac, that he would be sacrificed. And so the father and son proceed up this mountain, right? Isaac's laid on the altar of of wood there as a sacrifice. And in obedience to God's command, right? Verse 10 in chapter 22 tells us that Abraham raises the knife up to slaughter his son. Just get that picture in your mind. Now let's just pause. Can you imagine what Abraham is thinking at this moment? I mean, just place yourself in Abraham's shoes. Just contemplate what God promised him and what God has called him to do at this moment. He could have easily thought, Lord, you promised me this boy. You promised him. And you delivered on that promise and now you want me to sacrifice this kid? That's unbearable. No. That's not what Abraham thought, is it? No, Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Abraham willingly laid Isaac down as a sacrifice, knowing full well what? That God would raise him up. That there would be a death, burial, and resurrection. That Abraham would receive his boy, Isaac, back as a type of resurrection. But why? Why did he know by faith that God was going to raise him up? Because he knows, and we must know this morning, God is faithful to his promises. He said, no, God, you promised me an offspring. You're faithful. You're faithful to keep your promises to the end. So if you're going to kill my boy, I know you're going to raise him from the dead. Oh, that's clarity on who God is, is, not, is it not? Oh, that's it. That's a clarity we need this morning. Our God is faithful no matter what. So the promised offspring is spared. And look what the angel of the Lord declares to Isaac and Abraham on the top of that mountain in Moriah. Verse 18, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. Get it again, Genesis 1, echoes of Eden. And he does this, what does he say? Offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice by faith. So the promise is extended to Isaac here, right? He's the offspring that God mentions in this verse. And he hears the promise. This guy was almost killed by his own father. He hears the promise of offspring. And it's extended to him. And not only to Isaac, but to Isaac's male offspring. B, Jacob, the blessed second born. Now from chapter 23 to 24, Abraham dies, right? And so there's continued blessing, a fruitful multiplying offspring that comes about. But the narrative takes a turn here. So we're, we're done with Abraham. 
We love Abraham, but we're done. Now we're looking at Isaac. And as you know, Isaac ends up having one of those love at first sight moments, right? He, he has that whole interaction with Rebecca. They get married. Now first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Jacob and Esau sitting in a baby carriage. And you have these two twins, and they're literally two nations within the womb. And God declares to Rebecca, the older, that's Esau, shall serve the younger. That's Jacob. And that actually comes to place. That comes to happen. In chapter 25, Jacob is the promised seed in the line. He's the blessed one, but he's the youngest born. He doesn't deserve it. He actually receives the birthright from Esau. That's the rightful heir of the firstborn. And then chapter 27, Jacob steals, sorry, the blessing from Isaac that was due to the firstborn, Esau. And so we see this favor attributed to Jacob clearly in the vision of promise, right? If we move forward into Genesis chapter 28, we see this. Jacob has been sent to find a spouse. He's off on his own. He's already really ticked off his brother Esau. And so he's actually camping out for a night. He falls asleep. He starts to dream. So what's fascinating here, yes, I mean, the ladder's really cool. The, the angel is ascending, descending, up and down the ladder. Pretty awesome. The image is crazy, but the words that are promised to Jacob are even better. Let's look at chap- chapter 28, verses 13 and 15. Moses writes, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Do you hear that? Jacob's promised. He's promised a great land. He's promised a great nation. He's promised a great blessing. Why? Because the Lord remembers his covenant, not just with him, but it's, he remembers the covenant established with Abraham. And now that's extended to Isaac and now to his chosen offspring, Jacob. Now, let's just be clear. God is going to fulfill his promise. There will be a continued offspring, and that's what we see in Genesis 29 through 31, right? Jacob finds his bride. Actually, he finds two brides, Rachel and Leah, and so through that, those marriages, they fruitfully multiply. Twelve children. That's a lot, right? But in chapter 32, we continue to see that there's enmity between the seed of the woman, Jacob, and the seed of the serpent, Esau. So chapter 32, verses 1 through 21, the J- Jacob's entire family's on the run from Esau. He's terrified of this guy because Esau probably wants to kill him, right? He stole his blessing and he has his birthright. Esau's not happy. But in the middle of all this stuff going on, God stops Jacob in his tracks. Just look at chapter 32, verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And what happens? Well, in the heat of this battle, this wrestling match between this man and Jacob, the man touches the hip of Jacob, and it goes all out of joint. His hip is all messed up. 
So this man literally has one leg up on Jacob, but Jacob won't let go unless the man blesses him, which this person does. But listen to the blessing. Verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So in the same way that Abram became a new man when he was circumcised and was renamed the father of many nations, Abraham, God blesses Jacob and he becomes born again, a new man as Israel after being crippled in the struggle with the Lord. So, but with this new name, Israel, comes a radical transformation of his life, right? He now pursues reconciliation in chapters moving forward with Esau. He loves his family well. He hates what's evil. He's no longer this slimy muscle head, but a lover of truth. And this promise is reiterated all the more in Genesis 35. Just look at Genesis 35, 11. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Ah, Genesis 1. Edenic language. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So the promise once again extended land, nation, blessing. Which brings us to the promise extended to see Joseph, the exalted, beloved son. And so at this time, Esau, the seed of the serpent, is out of the picture. That's Genesis 36. So we can focus on Jacob, the seed of the woman in Genesis 37. We don't care about the seed of the serpent. We want to see what happens with the seed of the woman. What's going to happen with Joseph and his family? We're told that Israel, right, Jacob, loves his son Joseph more than any other son. So Joseph's the beloved son. He's got a sweet-looking robe. He's young, he's spry, and man, oh man, is he bold, right? But just make the connection here. Jacob's beloved son is Joseph. And it's already pointing us forward to someone else. The Lord Jesus, the beloved son with whom the Lord was well pleased. Just make the connections here between Joseph and the Lord Jesus. And so the love that Israel, right, Jacob had for Joseph infuriated the other brothers. But to make matters worse, Joseph is starting to elaborate on this wonderful dream of of ruling, reigning over his brothers, That probably went well. (laughs) No, it didn't. Oddly enough, Joseph thought it was a good idea to fill them in on it. And what's their response? They conspire against their brother. They're contemplating, oh, should we kill this guy? How are we going to take care of this? Right? Just think back to Cain and Abel. Death, sin, still a reality in Genesis. So what do they do? Well, they they meet in the middle. They're like, ah, killing is too far. How about we just chuck the guy in a pit? We'll take off his robe. We'll we'll make it look real messy. We'll throw him in a pit, and then we're going to sell him uh, to some traders. We're going to sell him to slavery. Sound good? Good. That's what they do. But not only is he sold into slavery, right? He's then transported to Egypt, a foreign land where he would be purchased by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. So Joseph 
is the uprooted son. An offspring that was meant to thrive and flourish, just as God promised. It actually looks to crumble at the hands of Abraham's own lineage. This is the part in the story where you're like, you dummies, what are you doing? You're destroying what God promised. No. No, God works all things for good. Joseph thrives in that land, doesn't he? And eventually God blesses his efforts there. And as you remember, there's a slew of dreams that are interpreted. Those interpretations eventually end up uh, having some uh, uh, resolution. Genesis 41, 41 says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph, the seed of the woman, experiences a metaphorical death burial and when he's imprisoned in the pit and then a resurrection to the right hand of the most powerful man in all the world at the time. That's Pharaoh. But just notice, see all the parallels, but here is a big, big problem. This isn't the land that Joseph was called to rule and reign over, is it? He's in another man's land. And he's the only offspring in it. So God's promise seems to be getting twisted up by the affairs of man. But no, God is faithful. So just look, Genesis 42 through 46, there comes a surprising turn of events, doesn't there? There's a famine in the land. It breaks out and Jacob's entire family, including all 11 sons, are on a mission to seek out help because that land of Canaan, that land that was promised, is in all kinds of problems. Tons of disarray. And so Joseph's identity ends up being revealed to us in chapter 45, right? He comes before in this awesome story with his whole entire family. They get reconciled with his undeserving brothers and Jacob's brought down from Canaan and he resides in Egypt with the rest of of the family. Should be the end. We're a happy bunch of family, aren't we? No. God has something else in store. Listen to chapter 46, verse 27b. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70 people. That's all that's left of this great offspring. That's all that's left of this lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's a small offspring in a foreign land with no blessing. So you come from this high, high all the way throughout the book and it's like, what on earth is God doing? There's nothing that's taken place. You not only have an uprooted son now, now you have an uprooted nation, and now the promise that God said he would complete, it looks lost. So Jacob's going to spend the rest of his days outside of the land that God promised to him and his forefathers. But at this point, we actually see a glimmer of hope. Right, Because Jacob spends his last bit of energy blessing each one of his 12 children with land with blessing, and with offspring. And you're like, wait a second, Jacob, how on earth is that going to happen? You're in some other person's land. You have 70 people. How is this going to take place? 
right? Just listen to the language. Genesis 48, 4, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will give this land to your offspring. Genesis 48, 21, behold, God will be with you and will be, bring you again, bring you again to the land of your fathers. Genesis 49, 25, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Jacob's reiterating for his children, you will receive a great land, a great nation, a great blessing. But as I've said, there seems to be a problem here, doesn't there? They aren't that great nation. They aren't in that great land, and there's no blessing anywhere to be seen. So it would be unhelpful for us to not feel the weight of this. There's a potential to seemingly lose all hope. Because the next 430 years, these people and all their descendants are going to be stuck in Egypt. 430 years of enslavement, which is going to bring us right up to Exodus chapter 1. So we have a cosmic, catastrophic dilemma here. An uprooted nation sits in another man's land. But as soon as we think the night has won, we hear Jacob's last wishes. This is what he says to his family. Genesis chapter 50, verse 5. My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. That's God's promised land. What does he say? There shall you bury me. Wait a second. You're going to bury me in the land of Canaan? You're going to bury him in the land of Canaan? This guy's about to die, and his wish is to be sent, to be buried, his bones to stay in the land of promise. Why? Because God isn't done yet. Jacob knows wholeheartedly that God will most certainly redeem his people and they will eventually be brought into the land of promise with a great number and in a great land. But oh, it's deeper than that, isn't it? There's a greater hope than just Canaan. Because the promise was established. The promise was extended. But the promise is realized. But that promise isn't realized when we get to Exodus chapter 1, is it? Or Exodus chapter 12 when God sends them out. No, the promise that we see from Abraham's line is realized in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we're going to see that in three different points here. There's a greater blessing through Jesus. There's a greater nation through Jesus. And there is most certainly a greater land through Jesus. So A, a greater blessing through Jesus. Now at this point, we've seen clearly that God promised blessing to Abraham, right? I hope you heard that this morning. We heard it as early as Genesis 12. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you says it a bunch of times, blessing, blessing, blessing. But we must be clear that the greatest possible blessing is truly God himself. That's the blessing, meaning where there's true reconciliation and peace with God, there's freedom from sin. And where there's freedom from sin, there's ability, there's possibility 
of reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ. And this promise of blessing is realized fully and finally in Jesus Christ alone, the lamb who was slain for sinners like you and me. And so the one who's truly blessed and delivers the blessing, which is found in the enjoyment of God in his presence forever, is really, we see this in Galatians chapter 2, where we see this blessing unfold for the people of God. It says, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. And just skip down to Galatians 3.7. He's continuing an argument, and we need to follow it. Know then that it is those of faith, those of faith in Christ, who are the sons of Abraham, descendants and offspring. And the scripture, keep reading with me, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's pretty awesome. But listen to what he says. Saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Where's that language coming from? Genesis 12 through 17. So then, those who are of faith are what? They're blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. <laughs> Holy smokes, that is good stuff. We inherit the blessing as Abraham received the blessing through Jesus. But not only is there a great blessing, but there's a greater nation through Jesus. So God's building a great nation, one that's filled with people of diverse backgrounds, different skin colors, different hobbies and interests. This is a group without number as seen in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. It's a global effort and not one that's anchored solely to a few members of Abraham's immediate family. No, God has greater purposes than that, brothers and sisters. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, 6. Just listen to these words. Paul tells us, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What good news is this? In Christ, the promise of offspring, the promise of a great nation is realized, but it's realized through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles that put their faith in Christ alone are made co-partakers of the promise. The promise is established through the covenant of old and is now realized in the new covenant through Christ's shed blood on the cross. Joint heirs, partakers of promise through our great serpent crusher. But this new people of God, this one new man in Christ is not left as a bunch of nomads in the middle of the Middle East. No, through Christ, the people of God are promised what? The threefold promise. They're promised land. Oh, we are promised a greater land through Jesus. We saw in Genesis 12 through 50 that God has continuously promised a greater land, hasn't he? But that land of Canaan was only a sliver of a view of the wonderful land that God has in store for those who trust in Christ alone. God has in mind an even better land, a completely new creation. So the land of Canaan 
that we saw way back in Genesis actually functions as a type of the land that's promised to us right now. Something far better is coming for the people of God right now. God planned to lead Abraham, all of his children, and you and me, not to some distant land in the middle of the Middle East. No. He promised to bring us to an entirely new land without end. One where the Lamb of God sits on his throne with a multitude of brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue where we're standing in unison, a multi-ethnic, blood-bought community. And we stand in awe of our radiant king who from Genesis to Revelation has seen fit to send his son to bring about blessing in a nation and a land. And with this crew of people, we will exclaim as one people of God, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who sealed our pardon with his blood. And now he grants his eternal offspring with an eternal cosmic land that will fill the earth with his glory, with the blessing of enjoying God for all our days. But here's the million dollar question. What's God doing? And how does this actually help me? All this stuff about 38 chapters in Genesis, how does this help me tomorrow morning? How does this help me roll out of bed tomorrow to fight the good fight of faith? How does this sermon have any relevance? Knowing a threefold promise of blessing and a nation and land, how is that going to help me tomorrow? How is that going to help me Monday through Sunday get through? This world is tough. Oh, brothers and sisters, see it here. Your God has not only been faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. No, it doesn't span 30 chapters. It spans eternity. He's been so faithful to you. He's been so faithful to me. And how? because Christ came and provided our greatest need. Freedom from sin, death, and the devil. So if God has provided for your greatest need, will he not be just as faithful in regard to every one of your other needs until he brings you home in glory? Is that not the case? He's faithful even when you're weak. He's faithful even when you're broken. He's faithful when you're faithless. Well, that's a truth to take home to the bank from Monday to Sunday. He's faithful to his promise and he's most certainly faithful to his people. We need not forget that as the church. May God give us the grace to stand by faith as children of the promise and fix our eyes solely to our great reward until Christ returns for his treasured possession and brings us all the way home to a great land for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus. 
the one who in him the promise is realized of a greater land, a greater blessing, and a greater nation. So Lord, we pray that we would be the people of God who would stand firm on the promises, that we'd cling to them and we'd move forward looking to the sole reward, the Lord Jesus himself, that we'd be a treasure, that we'd be the people of his possession, that we would treasure Jesus as we long for the day that he takes us home. So we pray that we would live by faith and not by sight. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.